0: of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. We are on episode 32. Uh, I am back. I've been away for a little while uh, due to work and everything, Uh, but I'm really happy to be back tonight. I'm here with Clint. How you doing, Clint?
1: Doing fantastic, buddy. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, too. Can't can't wait to dive into this episode. Uh, Tonight, we have Glenn Brooks. From Glenn's reptiles and the, the focal taxa for this evening is going to be Madagascar cat-eyed snakes, Madagascarophis, uh, Colubrinus. So um, if anybody has done anything with this species, they absolutely know Glenn. Uh, he's basically kind of put them on the map as far as I'm concerned. And my introduction to them came through Glenn posting on his absolutely beautiful Facebook and Instagram pages. And I thought I need to get those, and I got them, and I've bred them, and I've raised them, and they are they are my top ten favorite glubroids. Uh, so that is that. So we'll be talking with Glenn here in a here in a moment. But before we get into that, we're going to just do our housekeeping and give our updates. So it's been a while since I was on. I don't remember what I I, I recorded with April, and I think that was a little over a month ago. So we're down to what we call dead week here at West Liberty. It is the thank the dear Lord above It is the last week of fricking classes. So I'm going to get my life back. Sanity will invade the anxiety that surrounds me may go away. Uh, So, um, and then it's just field season flipping rocks and creeks and hills and mountains and looking for whatever's under them. So um, I'm kind of living for that. But in the meantime, until that happens, a couple things in my world have happened. We had a surprise yellowtail crebo clutch here at the school. Uh, we put the animals together. All fall, well, they were snuggling a couple days, and I thought there could be something going on there. And I don't know if this is the case with other dry how uh, We bred this pair before, but they just snuck those eggs right in there. I pulled the female out twice and told the grad students, there's no need to worry, she's not gravid. And then not three days later, I got a text message saying, if she's not gravid, then what are these? I was like, oh. Those are eggs, because she was gravid So, we have a clutch on the ground They're all viable too, which is cool And then yesterday, uh, my false water cobras Did something that they've never done before Um, I have a There's a student Technically they're not my advisee But I'm on their committee And I'm obviously a huge part of the project Who wants to do a behavioral study With uh, baby false water cobras To see if there's any kind of kin selection It's really cool stuff If you incubate the eggs together uh, do the babies kind of gravitate, if kept communally, to the animals that they were incubated next to, or will they just kind of disperse? And there's some evidence from some pythons that they do that. And I'm really good at making falsies, and you make a lot of them when you make them, so we end up having what we need for a thesis. And so I, I bred the false water cobras four weeks apart with the hope of them staggering laying eggs uh, so that the grad student could prepare. And wouldn't you know it, uh, the one that I bred. S- First, delayed or incubation or delayed fertilization, and now last night I got well yesterday I got a message and it said hey, you know false watercrows laying eggs, and then on my way to school the grad student Jimmy was like uh the other one's laying eggs I was like oh crap <laughs> so when I woke up there were no eggs on the ground and when I went to bed there were sixty two eggs so these things don't mess around when they lay and uh, wow. there was one exhausted grad student who had to take data on every single freaking egg and set them all up individually and you know, whenever you try to make a plan the animals are like, hold my beer, we're gonna screw this up, Mm -hmm. and that's basically what happened and then other than that um, I bred a lot of locality kings at home, that's my thing at home, and uh, I've got a lot of gravid girls there so lots of Florida localities um, an eastern pair and um Means Eye, or Goine Eye, or Blotched King, whatever the hell you want to call that thing. I have Liberty Counties, and then I have, uh here in the office, the Harris County Speckleds. And then um another grad student's doing Hognose Snakes, and I don't know if a few guys have tried to breed Hognose Snakes before, but they are a pain in the ass, in my experience. The males just basically flop that cloaca over anything that moves, and they don't care if they're mating with the female, or the pine chips, or the water bowl, or the side of the tub. And I couldn't get them to, like, I I wasn't getting any locks or anything that I could see. And then I thought, it doesn't really matter what we make, because we just have normals, so I threw a bunch of boys together with a female, and turns out when you throw another male in there, they they, they realize, ah, I guess I shouldn't mate with the pine chips, maybe I should mate with the female, and that's what ended up happening. I finally got visual locks yesterday so uh, and this has been going on for like three weeks it's been a little bit ridiculous so uh yeah but it's been a lot of fun the past couple weeks um and looking forward to the future of this year once this semester is dead so that's what my updates are clint well hold on a minute clint has something he wants to propose to y'all uh this is pretty cool it's an idea he has for his shop, but it has wide impact, at least here in uh, North America. So why don't you tell the listeners what you're up to?
1: Well, absolutely. Uh, it, you know, It's been some exciting times out here at the shop, and I'll go into that uh, uh, a little bit more in a minute. But uh, what Zach's talking about is just today on the Metazotics Facebook page, uh, I, I created a post, and I wanted to do something – Something big and you know while it's not massive, it, it's it's big on a on my scale, I would say. Um so when opening the shop, we had the mentality that we didn't just want to to have nice animals, we didn't just want to have product, we we wanted to create an experience. And because I mean, in my opinion, experiences are what sticks with you much longer than, than anything material. Um, so with that in mind, I, I asked myself, well. What are the experiences that I like that I would like to share? Because not everyone's going to be able to come through and and visit the shop. You know, they're not going to make their way through Southern Indiana. Uh, Why would you, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I I said, you know, every year, one of my favorite reptile-related experiences is the Tinley Park NARBC show, the October one specifically. I just I absolutely love going out there. I have such a great time. I love everything I see. Getting to uh, you meet people that you've just watched online. You, you meet friends that you you know for years and years, and it's just a wonderful time. So with that in mind, if you're listening to this and that sounds good so far, go to the Facebook page because what we're doing is um, I am I'm putting out a giveaway on September fourth. We are going to draw and um, it completely at random. The grand prize winner of that drawing is going to get a hotel a half mile from the Tinley Park show, completely paid for for two nights. It's already booked.
0: <laughs>
1: going to get two VIP passes to the Tinley Park show uh, because that's, again, I want someone, if you've already gone, great. Now you're going to get to go for free. If you've never been, hopefully this would be what would send you because it's an experience that I absolutely love. Uh, you know, when I was talking to Zach, I said, now there, there is a catch and there's bonuses. Uh, the catch is, uh, obviously, I, I've got to do this to, to help us out a little bit too. And we need to get to 5,000 Facebook followers. That's, that's the catch. For us to do this drawing on September 4th, we have to reach 5,000 Facebook followers. We're already halfway there. So, done, done half the work for you already, right? Yep. Um, but I will put bonuses in there too. If we go over 5,000, for every 500 above the 5,000 mark, first, I'm going to do an additional drawing and buy another VIP pass for extra winners. Uh, and we're going to put $50 in a pot for a grand prize winner. So for every five hundred above that, another fifty dollars. So that way they have some money to to go spend at the the Tinley show because we know that part's inevitable, right? Yes. Uh, so so that's what we're running, and it's already gotten a lot of attention out there. Wanted to share it with all the listeners here because again, it's it's just something I think is fun, and uh, would be a good time for anybody. So
0: I, I think it's great, and. Let's be real. Let's throw some love Clint's way because Clint is everything that's right about herpetoculture. And uh, we're not going to talk about the recent news in herpetoculture because it hasn't been the best as of late. And I don't want this to be a negative uh, you know, conversation. But at the same time, if we can throw out and advocate for the, the people that are doing well and we can kind of show the good side of herpetoculture, I think that we're not doing it. We're just doing it our our hobby our discipline what we want so you know sport clint can't can't say it enough
1: thank you uh, so much buddy i appreciate no it
0: and uh, on, the, go ahead. the university supported you because we sent you 50 corn snakes sure did yes
1: 50 <laughs> so, corn snakes came from zach and uh half of them have already found new homes that's and uh, I, I will tell you a story that i think that you would like zach is mm-hmm. uh on i put a post out letting them you know letting everybody know that we had a lot of corns here's what we're going to do and um on saturday morning we had cars in the parking lot and the very first uh customers to walk through the door was a mother and her two young children coming to get their first corn snakes uh each one of them left with one and it it was fantastic it was great so yeah that's that's um, what we
0: hoped would happen with them yeah
1: that's exactly what did yep um, now, I'll tell you. In addition to that, we've had a lot of uh, a lot of fun things going on out here. We've uh, I've seen some uh, courtship out of the Carinata. So the uh, Chinese king rats, those are always fun. Always mm-hmm. like when we have good years with them. Um, we don't. Let's see. Well, we had green bush rat eggs on the ground for a while, but uh, the rest of the colubrids are now starting to go. Went a little bit later than I normally mm-hmm. do. Um, but we've got prelay sheds on things like uh, T positive, Nelson milks, um, uh, some of the black rat mutations are definitely nice. showing. So, uh, getting to go through and put my color coded orange <laughs> stickers up on the females that <laughs> I know are grabbing, cards. and I don't have to uh, cycle anymore. So, uh, that's going well. We also uh, have started our expansion into a second room. For um, for mice right now we do rats and mice in the same room. I want to split that out, uh, so we are insulating, studying up, and all that. So that's now fine. It, it's you know it's it's another project. Then yep. so seeing those projects slowly come off the list are so exciting. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, good stuff going on uh, all the way around.
0: Fantastic! I'm glad to hear that the shop's going well, and really glad to hear that those corns ended up in future herpers' hands, that's what our, our goal was was with them. So, yeah, they were part of um one of my undergrads, who's going to be my grad student in the fall. We, we thought it'd be cool to do a study where we bred a bunch of pears together. We incubated the eggs at 77 degrees, and then we incubated the eggs at 82 degrees. And then we took data on those animals for the first six months of life. So... We kept track of everything they ate. We kept track of when they shed. We kept track of how much they weighed at different time points, how long they were. And uh Bree is presenting her capstone this Friday. And when I look at the data, it's pretty cool. Um, corn snakes are kind of the model for snake in academic herpetoculture, And mm-hmm. I kind of came to the realization, like, there is no paper written. And this is usually the first step when you have a model of just, like, how you breed them and what the first 6 months of life look like and and I thought you know I'm not saying this doesn't exist there's been plenty of people that have taken data but it's never been really like published formally so mm-hmm. that's what that's what those are for and then we got it's really funny we got so about a, two, three weeks ago, or you know, the week before, I messaged you, and everybody they they bumped up from pinkies to fuzzies to small <laughs> adult mice, and somebody came down the hallway and was like, "Can we please move these because they're expensive?" And I was like, "Yeah, I guess <laughs> that's that." And we still have thirty of them here. Like I didn't even send you everything. Oh wow. Uh huh. So those are going to be going out to some other uh, people, but.
1: Fantastic. Well, for those who are going to receive them, yeah, you're getting some nice animals. I I was shocked at the size, and I mean, they were absolutely beautiful, so... um, Nice. Thanks again.
0: No worries. All right, we will jump into our episode tonight. So tonight, we have Glenn Brooks from Glenn Reptiles. How you doing, Glenn?
2: Doing fantastic.
0: Great to be here. Ah, well, we're, we're very, very happy to have you. So... First question is going to come from Clint, and then we'll go from there.
1: <laughs> All right, Glenn. Well, we want to know about you, buddy. We want to know how you got into reptiles? What's your background? You know, how would this come about? <laughs>
2: well, yeah, I am. Um, um, I, one of the things I found interesting when I got into reptiles and really kind of took it more seriously is it seems like people kind of come into collect, uh, collecting reptiles from different backgrounds. Some academic, some scholarly, um, and others uh, kind of come at it because they like dark things in life. <laughs> you know, the skulls and spiders and, and that, so snakes naturally attract them. And some people come to it because they love animals and specifically love keeping animals as pets. And that's really how I, I came into snakes. Um huh. I did have snakes uh, that I caught, a little decay of snakes um, when I lived up in New England in junior high. Um, but really, I didn't keep many snakes until uh, I was an adult. Um, I, I started uh, fish. I did a lot of fish tanks, saltwater, mm-hmm. freshwater. went through that whole routine. And then I just started keeping unusual animals. I had a flying squirrel and a ferret (laughs) and, you know, just a variety of different unique animals. Um, And at one point I bought, at at the time, a Pac-Man frog, Mm -hmm. um, which I don't know that they they had that name at that point, but Argentine horned toad um there were no morphs there was just a green one (laughs) yep and i bought this little baby that was about the size of a quarter because it could swallow goldfish and it was just unbelievable to me (laughs) and so i raised that thing to where it was the size of a dinner plate and could eat (laughs) medium-sized rats adult rats Mm -hmm. and it was super cool but man was it messy (laughs) Um, and so at that point I thought, you know what, I'm going to trade it in. And I had a friend that had snakes and I was kind of curious about getting a snake. So I said, Hey, I want to, I want to trade this frog in and get a snake. The guy was all for it because he'd never seen one of those frogs at large. And so he was very excited about making the trade. And so I knew absolutely nothing about snakes. And this was, I was probably, about 24 at this point. Um, And he took me back to a tank. He pulled out a snake, put it in my hand, and it was rolled up into a ball. It just stayed in the center of my palm. And it was clearly back then a wild caught ball python. (laughs) Um, And I stood there. I remember my hand shaking, holding this little tiny baby ball python in my palm, thinking, oh my gosh, it's a snake. Um, And so I started caring for that ball python and I just loved it. I was like, these snakes are so great because uh, you can get them out. You can handle them Um, uh, at least many of them. Uh, all of them that I, I I'll say all of them that I have, (laughs) Um, you can handle them. Uh, You can, uh, you know, they only eat once a week. They only poop about once a week, you know, so maintenance is pretty low and um so i just sort of fell in love with the idea of having a snake and then i've always whenever i've had an animal i've always kind of tried to find a way to breed them because i just find that fascinating so i looked for uh, that was a male ball python i had i looked Mm -hmm. for a female ball python and back then this was before the internet by the way (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I looked in the classified section of the newspaper, yeah, which was the back pages. You know, I I imagine a lot of listeners don't know what a newspaper is, much less the classified (laughs) section. (laughs) But I went back there in the for sale section and found a pair of ball pythons, and and then I went to this guy's house with a probe. That a friend had showed me, this is how you check to see if they're males or females. Never done it in my life. Showed up, got that guy's ball pythons, probed them, probed two females. And so I thought, I'll take them. I brought them (laughs) home. Uh, I brought them home. I bred them. And I've been hooked ever. I mean, that was it for me. And those babies hatched out. Well, when I got eggs. And then when those babies hatched out, I was like, okay, what else can I breed? And so then I started getting other animals. Um, I got some corn snakes, got some milk snakes. And just from there on out, it was, you know, just an obsession with that. Um, and so, yeah, I, since then, I just kind of have built my collection. Um, it used to cost me a reasonable amount of money to do Um, and every year I would trade my animals for you know, the animals I produced for better, more expensive, different, more exotic animals. And then it just kind of built that collection more and more. And, um, and now it actually is, uh, no longer costing money, but brings in a little bit of money. I, I do it just as a hobby. It's not a business Mm -hmm. for me. Um, but it's, it's nice to have a hobby that's not doesn't cost a lot of money Uh, most hobbies end up costing a lot of money all my other hobbies in fact this hobby pays for a lot of my other hobbies
0: so Uh, can can we know what those other hobbies are I always love to hear what snake people's other hobbies are
2: well one of my hobbies (laughs) um, is photography okay well that's uh,
0: evident by your Facebook
1: page yeah yeah. comment was going to come out at some (laughs) point yeah
2: I, I love photography, uh, always have been fascinated by just creating a look of things and trying to, to get things to look good, um, and since I started making a little bit money of money, then I started going, well, you know what, maybe I'll get a decent camera to take some pictures, and then I made a little bit more money, and then I'm, maybe I'll get a good camera to take some yeah. pictures, <laughs> and maybe, maybe I'll get a really good camera, then I'll get a nice flash system, and then... It just every year, it's like I add something more to that. Um, some of what, and and now I've added to it not just for snake photography, but now I've added lenses for bird photography. Mm-hmm. And I have six grandchildren, um, and <laughs> full, four of them are playing baseball right now. Nice. So I get to I, I've got lenses to go and get pictures of them playing baseball and. So, yeah, that's one of my hobbies. Um, and then the, another ex, two other expensive hobbies I have are cycling, um, okay. and that costs a ton of money, um, and then golf, which also mm-hmm. costs a ton of money. Um, mm-hmm. And really, I don't think I could really afford to do those hobbies very often if it wasn't for the fact that I keep reptiles and make a little extra income that I can then use to, to do other, other hobbies.
1: Well, there you go. Before we move too far past the hobbies, I I, want to say, being that you mentioned that photography, you know, is is one of... That's the one thing that as soon as Zach mentions your name as as a uh, Mm -hmm. guest, instantly, I think I even say, guy takes fantastic pictures. (laughs) I mean, that's it. it. It's, I mean, any... That's how I knew your name right off the bat was because I know your pictures. Any before I see your name, you know your, your trade uh, watermark on it, uh-huh. I can tell that that's a Glenn picture right there because yep. of how phenomenal uh, your animal pictures are. So no, I, I like job. this.
0: I like this picture so so much in the book. Uh, people like Baron's racers, and Baron I is like the most photogenic dipsatted in the world, in my opinion. Maybe tricolor hogs, give them a run for their money. But I was having a hell of a time finding pictures, and then I realized, like, oh, my God, Glenn. Glenn has those <laughs> pictures. And so when this book inevitably comes out sometime in the next decade, uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you get to the Eye section and you look at who took the pictures. I think, so you know, Glenn, I think that uh, at least the third – if not more of those of your photographs take up the bear and eye section. Oh, so.
2: that's awesome! What, love yeah, no, do so that. they're
0: they're definitely all over. That. Russ and I were were, were were tickled pink that you gave us permission to use those. So thank you.
2: Well, you know, and part of the deal with uh, taking pictures of them is hmm. I I love holding snakes, and part of what I love ho- about holding them, it's different than looking at them in a tank. There's a little more interaction and they're closer and you begin to see, oh, look, that's how those scales form or, oh, I didn't see (laughs) this color before. And so um, when I take pictures, I want to try to convey that idea that Mm -hmm. this isn't just a green snake laying on a table. There's stuff going on. There's colors. There's nuances that... Scales may be emphasized in certain areas, you know, keen scales in some snakes. And I want to kind of help people appreciate the uniqueness and beauty of each of the snakes that I have. And so that's what I'm trying to accomplish with the photography. And um, it's funny, I I constantly am switching how I do it. And then I go, (laughs) I think I got it figured out. And then I look back, I'm like, well, some of those older pictures look better than some of my newer pictures. So maybe I got to rethink it again. So... I'm always trying to dial it in.
0: Very cool. Very very cool. So, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip a, on our outline, Clint. I'm gonna skip to the next red one because I think it's a good segue. Um, so your collection is kind of insane, and and I I love your collection because you never know what snake picture is going to pop up next. Like I have a tendency to be. I think I figured it out just by, you know, looking at the social media feeds. And then I'm like, wait, what? He's got those, too? So I I feel like if you really went over the entire collection, we would be here for like 30 minutes. Could you just kind of give like the 30,000-foot view of the species that you're keeping?
2: Yeah, I'll I'll give you a (laughs) bit of a rundown. Part Part of of that (laughs) is um, I'm very specific about what I want. And a lot of times, I'll get a species thinking this is going to work for me, and I'll uh-huh. keep it for a year or two, and then I'll go, nope, I can't, cal- I can't calm it down. That's that's one. Yeah. If something musks me every time I pick it up, it will not stay in my collection very long. Well. <laughs> um, so I will tame down. I've got a lot of animals. That people say, oh, these are super aggressive animals. I'm like, not mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got um, a trio of adult. Uh, bismarck ringed pythons that are Mm -hmm. gentle as can be Um, never bite never aggressive and yet people talk about them as if they're you know uh bitey snakes um they were as babies um but i was able to settle them down so some of what you see is snakes that have that i have known (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) have passed on into other people's collections uh, but I'll tell you what I'm currently. I'm gonna, I've got a list right here, so I run through it kind of quickly for you. Sure. I've got the, and I'll just do common names because I'm not very good with Latin. Sure. Um, Velvet swamp snake, tricolored hognose, royal diadem <laughs> rat snake, Peruvian calico snake, uh, red zap corn snakes, palmetto corn snakes, and scaleless corn snakes. Uh, Leonis, formerly known as Therai King snakes, uh, Nelson's milk snakes. Where I'm, I've developed a red back line that Very is cool. pretty unique. Um, Chinese beauty snakes, um, but I'm working with uh, the hypo slash albino calico versions of the Chinese mm-hmm. beauties. Um, hundred flower rat snake, Um I've got hypos and het hypos. Uh, Sonoran Desert Boas, which I don't know if you saw my Facebook feed today, but I got (laughs) a beautiful clutch of 18 um, this morning.
1: Congratulations. Yeah,
2: and I'm working with hypos. They're locality specific. I'm working with hypos, Um, but I got leopards and some kind of annery, which surprised me, which makes me say, are they really locality specific <laughs> to have <laughs> anything <anybody laughs> there so mm-hmm. once they get rid of their goo and shed i'm gonna do a little more deep dive into the history <laughs> of these guys and see what's going on but it's a pretty cool looking clutch yeah but I'd, I'd be disappointed if they if i found out they weren't locality specific but anyway and then i've got tamalapis uh Cloud Forest Boas, a locality that are a nice dwarf boa that's beautiful and mellow as can be. Rough scale pythons, um, San Diego Gopher snakes uh, that I work with. That I've got a zombie phase, that snow phase. Mm-hmm. That's pretty wild looking. Uh, I work with a bunch of morphs of bull snakes. I've got uh, leucistic versions of Colombian Rainbow Boas. Uh, my Madagascar cat-eyed snakes, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. in a little bit. Ringed pythons, which I mentioned. This is what I'm super excited about. Black-headed spotted whip snake. I don't know if you've yeah. seen those guys. I have seen those guys. Oh, my gosh. Those uh, are fantastic. I got um, – this was the first year I even tried to breed them. They're approaching adult size. And um, one of my females – I have a trio. One of my females – laid slugs this year, which I thought was, a, that's a good first step. Something's mm-hmm. happening. Um, so I think I'm going to get some next year. Very hopeful. Um, I've got some, uh, Black Gap Alterna. Um, I've got some, uh, true El Salvadorian blood boas, um, from Pierre line. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Madagascar tree boas. I got some of those all, um, uh, Mandarin, no greens. If anybody listening to this has greens, they would like to sell me some, please contact me. Um, Barron's racers, um, blue, uh, some blue and some green. And then I have a pair of Eastern garter snakes. Nice. So, isn't that (laughs) crazy to throw garter snakes into that Mm -hmm. mix? Um, and uh, they're albino and eerie, yeah. Um and they're really cool. And funny, I, I mean, I never thought I'd get a garter snake because what I tell you about? you got to handle it. Yeah. I don't want to get musked. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I've never considered a garter snake. Um, but one time on Facebook, I saw this post where someone wrote, what is your favorite of all your pet snakes? And like eight people wrote eastern garter snake. I was like, how could that possibly be true? <laughs> and so I bought a pair that I thought looked great and thought I would try it. And they're great.
0: Yeah. I um, love my garters. They're <laughs> among my favorite. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: So that's kind of, yeah, I've, I've been through a handful of other animals that I've had varying degrees of success and different reasons for getting out of certain things, but... I don't have a ton of space, even though that list sounds really big. I don't have a ton of space to keep things in. So you'll notice nothing gets really big that I that yep. I have. Uh, um, and so they're animal. My favorite snake, by the way, Zach, is a false water cobra. Really? Yeah.
0: Um, you have good taste, sir.
2: Yeah. I, <laughs> I absolutely love them. I've, I've owned a few over the years. Mm-hmm. And I can I can keep them till they reach adulthood, and then I have to get rid of them because I don't have room for them.
0: Yeah, they're, they yeah. yeah they they need a lot of space when they become adults. If you're doing yeah, so
2: so mm-hmm. I keep I generally when I've had them I've, I've bought babies and I've had them for a couple of years, two to three years. Yep. And I just love them, and then I'm like, well, now I have to sell them. I did the same thing with uh, uh, Eastern indigos. Oh, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And in both cases, I thought, you know what, maybe things are always changing in your snake rooms, right? Always moving. And I thought, maybe by the time they're adults, I'll have room to have (laughs) some big, you know, bigger cages. Mm -hmm. Maybe that'll work out. um, But uh, I just end up raising those animals that are wonderful, great animals. So I enjoy taking pictures of them, I enjoy handling them, I enjoy raising them, but I can't ever breed them. I just get them up to adulthood and sell them to someone who will breed them.
0: So, that was quite the list. I I actually think you supported the hypothesis that was thrown out there before you listed the animal. Which Um, was, it would take too long? (laughs) Yeah, well not that, but it was just, (laughs) you know, we have everything from eastern garters to rough-scaled pythons to ring pythons to... One that was near and dear to my heart, which is slowly kind of catching on, which is um, the Typheless, the Velvet Swamp Snakes. Um, and a little fun story about that. That pair that produced the one clutch uh, that was showed up all over her face, the female of that clutch – no, the male of that, of that pair, I was supposed to get it because I kept getting girls – Oh, okay. I, would, I bought every velvet swamp snake that popped up. I had people like looking out for me, and I just got female after female after female after female. And then I decided, ah, crap. I'm done because um, they were crashing because they're wild caught and so they do really well, and then they're dead. Like, they're the we weirdest are. imports yep. ever. And then as soon as I gave up, the males showed up, and then they're super easy to breed, which is what's become apparent. And then boom, a clutch. So I was like, you know what? You just quit like two days too soon. <laughs> so that one stung a little. I'm not gonna lie. Um, but I've talked to the guy that produced those, so he's a good guy.
1: <laughs> I'd say I think it's funny that that's the snake that that Glenn started with on yeah. his list. Because you would think, you know, well, I've got these kings, I've got these corn, No, no, velvet swamp snakes. I'm like,
2: <laughs> what? That's, that's the first well, one on the, the list? The truth is I was just going through my albums on my Glenn Reptiles Facebook page because I keep yep. my snake pictures in albums so I can go back and find all the pictures of that particular type of snake.
1: So mm-hmm. it just means
2: there. it's the last one I put a picture There you go. In.
1: Gotcha. So, gotcha. Uh, yeah, so, so- –
2: so while we're on the
0: topic of, we might flip a, flip flip the script a little bit here, because sure. I feel like this is a very easy segue into you have all this diversity. So so how how do you go about maintaining a collection that has pythons, boas, dipsadids, lamprephidids, colubrid like you literally have the snake family tree in your yeah. snake room. So there's got to be I know that our mm-hmm. listeners would be interested to hear. How do you actually? And, and and I don't want this to be in any way, shape, or form interpreted negatively. I'm, I'm impressed because when you do take pictures of the snakes, they're all in like tip-top shape. So you obviously are doing something right. So what's the? How are you able to maintain that?
2: Yeah, it's and I would I would say uh, there's certainly room for uh, criticism with you know how can you provide ideal conditions for every one of those different types of snakes. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, I don't. Um, I I try to give each animal, as best I understand, its optimal temperatures and humidity, but I have to control that in racks. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is I have racks, and I put insulation in, inside of my racks to cut down hmm. on temperature temperature. Into the room and temperature into from from rack to rack from level to level, and then the hotter animals I put at the top of the racks, the animals okay. that need a hotter temperature, and then um, I will move down, and then the coolest animals will be on the floor. I control you know each level of a rack. You can control that temperature individually. Gotcha. And so based on, you know, if I have six that I need at a certain temperature, I'll put all of those on one controller. And then a hotter one a little bit above that. And hot, and so I, that, I kind of break it up in levels and heat by those levels. Um, so like the um, they want it cold. Uh, yeah. The, the, uh, the garters want it cool. Um, I put them on the bottom level with no heat. Um, And then I air-condition the room. Okay. And so the room's air-conditioned to about between 72 and 74. And then they have hot spots based on what they are that go up. Then I choose different bedding based on humidity requirements. Um. And then I also will seal holes and ventilation okay. based on humidity requirements. Um, cool. And so that's kind of from a big picture how I try to manage temperature and humidity um, in those systems and in a in a closed room.
0: Interesting. And what kind of racks are you using for
2: those? Um, I have yeah. ARS racks, uh, Freedom breeders, and then I've got
1: one big uh, PVC rack. Nice. And is this all in the same room? Yep, all the everything, same. Room. Everything you just described in the same. Wow, is in the same wow. small room. And, <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, now I can't brewmate in that room because of the species. So that, that's that's the bigger challenge: is how do you? roommate them all properly and again the answer is i don't i can't (laughs) and so all colubrids that are going to be bred go into my garage for the winter gotcha um and i live in northern california and it's just about perfect to sit in Mm -hmm. a garage in northern california for the winter doesn't get too hot doesn't get too cold kind of stays right in the low 50s well yeah low 50s um and then the um, boas and pythons and a mm-hmm. few of the colubrids that I don't think should get that cold. I open a window. I drop the temperature at night as cold okay. as it will get, um, which is usually low 60s. Okay.
0: Um,
2: and then some animals I don't... I raise their temperature up just a little bit during the day and others are feeding all winter. So I raise their temperature up to normal, um, during the day, but no heat at night and trying to drop it as low as possible. And so that's how I cycle boas and, and pythons. Um, I'm, I, I do think that, um, that may cause some of the challenges I've had in breeding some of those. Yeah, um, but I'm still trying to dial some of those in and see if there's some ways to alter that. Um, but I'm having good success with boas this year so far. Sounds uh, like it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so my, my ring pythons were doing great. Um, but m- you remember my rule about handling snakes. My my male ringed python that I got as a baby. I got him to settle down from biting me seventy times and uh, and holding him for like two minutes to only biting me about ten times every two minutes. Um, and so I found a sub adult male on online and I bought him, and that one I was able to tame down. And then when they were both, when he was adult size, I got rid of my biter, and I immediately gotcha. stopped getting good eggs. Ah. Uh. <laughs> And so it has been four years of no good eggs after having beautiful clutches every year for, well, only it was, it was only for a couple of years that I had him um, as an adult and I raised them all from babies. So I just now bought a pair of sub adults that I'm now going to have another male to try. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I put him in his, in his new tub and I literally have only had him for a couple weeks. Um, And when I went to clean his tub, there were sperm plugs all over the place. I was like, oh, that's a good good sign. Yes, yes. (laughs) yes. So fingers crossed for that.
0: Very cool. Do do you do a single feeding a week? Or do you, like, break it up where you do colubrids Tuesday,
2: you know, Um, boids, whatever? Excellent question. (laughs) And the answer to some degree is whatever. Um, But I... Generally, feed more by size of prey than by type of animal. So, like my bull snakes will eat anything that my pythons and boas will eat, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'll do you know uh, small rats. um, And a lot of my the bigger animals with the bigger food generally don't eat as often, so I don't feed Mm -hmm. them every week. Um, And so. Um, It kind of depends on how much time I have, what I feel like doing. Um, It takes a lot longer to thaw um, a -hmm. medium rat than it does a pinky. Um, And so if I don't have as much time, maybe I'll just feed my hatchling rack or my earlings. But Mm -hmm. it has more to do with size of prey item that they're eating. Um, So usually they all get fed over like two feed days. Gotcha. Um, in, in a week, um, or at least if they're feeding that week. So it takes me two feed days a week. Um, occasionally, I'll do it all on the same day. I, di- I did that Friday, um, and I fed everything from
1: top to bottom.
2: <laughs> um, and I was actually kind of surprised it didn't take as long as I thought it would. It hmm. only took a few hours.
1: Well, with a collection as uh, diverse as that, I'm guessing there's also the uh, – yeah, well. This one gets fed kind of depending on what doesn't eat. You yeah, know, oh this, yeah, this day exactly. too. Yeah, that's kind of like I mean with the Chinese kings. For me, it's a lot of times there's a well. What What do you normally feed them? Well, sometimes it's five adult mice. Sometimes yeah. it's ten hoppers. You know, just, yes. sometimes it's a medium rat. Just depends on what what didn't eat that day. So yeah, that's that's a common practice at a, at
2: my place as well.
1: Yeah. Gotcha. Very cool.
2: Any
0: final little tidbit that you'd like to share about maintaining the collection the way that you do for, for the well, listeners that we didn't, we didn't necessarily ask about that you think people should know?
2: Well, here's the thing about me. Um, as I mentioned, I kind of came into it not from a scientific perspective, although I do tend to have sort of a science mindset um, mm-hmm. in my approach. Um, and because I'm just so fascinated by each of the animals and you know, my emphasis is in things like the photography and handling and interacting. Um, I, I'm i a jack of all trades and a master of none. Yeah, and so that's me. It's funny because you asked, you asked me, like, which one do you want to talk about? And I'm like, well, I can talk about this. And I'm like, but they would be so much better at talking about or I could talk about this, but they would be so much better. At. So I know a lot of people who are experts in all of these animals, and I've talked to them, so I gained some of their a knowledge, but yeah. Um, so I think even with this, I, I, I agree. I haven't seen a lot of people who have such a diverse collection. Um, and I, it just, it just clicked for me. I just, I, if I have a lot of one thing, I kind of go, yeah, I get it. That's, you know, uh, yeah. Um, and so I got rid of a lot of my corn snakes this last year and several of my bulls and just kind of the standard stuff and i'm, I'm mm-hmm. kind of dialing that in i love the i love those animals but i'm sort of speci- um, specializing in particular morphs or or mm-hmm. types of of some of those animals just so i have room to yeah. do the things that i want to do
1: you know glenn you, you, when you said you're a jack of all trades of master none it's I think I even mentioned this on the last episode, and I know it's something that I talk about almost daily uh, here. Having such a diverse group, I think it just makes you such a better keeper because Mm. you have to learn so many more behaviors, so many more quirks, so many more things. So it's... It also makes you more primed for taking on a new species Mm -hmm. because you are quick to recognize, oh, I've seen that before, Mm -hmm. you know, in in this kind of, you know, this type of animal. And and it's um, so, you know, I think that it's it truly builds us to to be better. Another thing that you'd mentioned it and I guess I want to make sure that our listeners picked up on this when you stated that you have your room cooled to about seventy two, seventy four seventy four degrees. And everybody's got the hot spot that they need. That goes back to again a previous episode where we talked about just gradient. By giving great the gradient. animals the gradient, they will take care of themselves in such yeah. a great way. So um, that's that's exactly why you're able to have such a diverse collection is you let them pick what they need and what yeah. they want.
2: Yeah, you know, Clint. Part of that for me is I I, I do think one of the keys to my success is. I observe the animals. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this snake is off the heat every day. Maybe it's too hot. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, this animal um, it it has a faster metabolism than the others. Maybe I should feed it a little more often. Um, You know, you just kind of watch the different animals. And I've got, I I was going to have somebody come in and feed for me. But then it was like, well, that animal you have to feed a, a <laughs> pinky rat on, on tongs. That animal you can't disturb, and you got to give it a chicken leg. And that, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah I, cu- I can't really tell you that because I've got too many animals. I mean, most of them will just grab anything you put near them. But I certainly have a large number that are like, I'll eat, but you got to give me what I want, the yeah, way I yeah. want it. Yeah, Pacific you got to wiggle it want. just
1: this way yeah. on that side of my face, don't not hold, on this side of my yeah, face. Don't, let <laughs> it hold, don't hold it face down. You got to yeah. hold it on the – have it face me. I will not yeah. bite
2: it if it's facing
1: down.
0: <laughs> I, I talk – I try to teach the students here about nuance, and I do think if you maintain – and this isn't meant to be a dig if you're listening and you're like, wait a minute, I do that. But I, I – there is something to be said about having that diversity – uh, because you can totally get into a groove of what it takes to feed 50 Florida Kings. Like, we we have the Florida King collection that's in a different building, and it's been kind of fun. I've got students that take care of those animals. Thank you, Jen Archer. Um, and, and they have figured out, like, the, the nuance of feeding Florida Kings. And I know there's people listening, like, there is no nuance. There is if you get one that doesn't want to eat. Um, and And they have kind of figured that out. Uh, and then when they come over, you know, I had a kid tell me the other day, like the, I, I noticed that the corns eat, like the, our, our, our troublesome corn snakes. You got to give them day old quail, but if you try to give the day old quail to the kings, they won't touch it. But if you give them a day old chick, they're going to destroy it. And I was like, you're getting it. Yeah. You're learning the Jedi way now. <laughs> you're like finally yes. understanding yes. that it's not just. You know, mouse out of bucket on tongs feed snake. Like there's <laughs> there's something to that, you know, intimate understanding of your animal. And, and yeah, no, I, I love that you, you said that because I've been preaching that here with the students that are rolling through Zeus Eye And um, there's a tremendous amount of truth to that. And I, I, I you know, reflecting, I definitely, I, I think actually all of us, Matt, Clint, and I that are on the show, we all have – what at face value may not be eclectic collections, but back at my house, there are false water cobras. There are king snakes. There's Japanese rat snakes. There's yellow yep. anacondas. There's, um, my species of Eurythralampras that's still alive. The, uh, yellow bellied guys, Piscilla, Piscilla Garris, um, tricolor hogs, hognose snakes, Lewinsky, like, and I, I, I was trying to dial in for me cause I thought you're all over the place. This isn't right. And then I kind of <laughs> realized it is right because this is the way I want to do this. Yes. So yes. I have a little bit of snake ADHD. I have to I have to have my hand in a lot of pot. The one thing I have realized, though, this year um, is that the boas and the pythons are bouncing because I, I just have too many things that are temperate and, and trying to keep them in the space. So I'm keeping – like I'll have yellow anacondas and then uh, a water python, a New Guinea water python, that bit, way too many people here at the school has been <laughs> exiled to my garage. Um, it's actually my son's favorite snake, which means he really did get my DNA. Because uh. it comes out of that tub. Uh, like It's kind of the opposite of the Glenn Brooks way. If it wants to eat my face, I'm like, you're staying. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, but no, that's cool. It's kind of nice yeah. to hear a different perspective on that. All right. Well, um... Yeah, so most of those species were colubrids. There are boas, yes. and you have, it uh, sounds like a handful of pythons, but there's lots of colubrids, glubroids. so we have to ask this question because it's our, you know, it's the podcast. <laughs> what about colubrids make them the main focus, I guess you could say, of, of your collection?
2: Yeah, they're definitely the main focus. Um, uh, I just find them much more interesting interactively. Um, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know it seems to me like on average, they're more attentive and maybe Mm -hmm. I would say intelligent than the Boyd's. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, such a variety of colors and sizes and temperaments, Mm -hmm. um, that I just find them fascinating to work with. Um, Gotcha. Sorry. That's um, oh, okay. You came okay. Back. Um, um, Can you hear me now? Okay. Sorry yep, about that. Gotcha. Uh, i got to turn my phone That's off. That's okay. Evidently, my headphones <laughs> are also connected to my phone. I didn't realize that. I thought they were just connected <laughs> to my computer. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I just love colubrids. I think they're great um, animals to keep. And, yeah, I had bunch of colubrids before I um, got a started getting back into some pythons and and boas.
0: Very nice. Very, very nice. So, with with that, Clint, you want to jump into the Madagascar. Yeah, Pat let's, Eiser, let's you have
1: another question. No, no, no. I think that's uh that's where we go next at this point because it's this is it, it's funny. I, I feel like I'm repeating myself so often on some of these episodes, but it, it's super exciting when I've been in this for, you know, 30 years at this point mm-hmm. and I I love it when we're about to talk about a species I've never laid hands mm. on. Yeah, you, you know, yeah. never had in the collection. So it, it's always so neat to hear uh, you know, not just the care, but inevitably, I, I always like to ask about the behaviors. You know, what do they do? Yep. What are they? How do they act? You know. So uh, yeah, let, let's do it. Let's get into the cat eyes.
0: Yes. So with Madagascar cat-eyed snakes, Madagascarophis Uh I just want to know the origin story. How did they end up in your collection in the first place? Before we dive into their care.
2: Okay. Um, let me first correct you on. The fact that most of them in captivity are evidently not colobrophosis whatever you said there, not colubrinus, not called eubrinus, Correct. They are mm-hmm. meridionalis, meridionalis. Mer- yes, Meridionalis. There you go. Yep. That mm-hmm. is what is in most collections. Um, Interesting. Yeah. All right. Cool. And so uh, the the former is very the cool. most common um, in Madagascar but not the most common in the area from where they were exporting and because the okay. animal is so common there so abundant um, they probably didn't go very far away to, in order to collect them That's what the theory is uh, but I'll, I'll give okay. a shout out um, Roger Putris, who's uh, in the UK he has done mm-hmm. so much real scientific research into these guys <laughs> um, that he, he really has done some great work. So some of the, what I know, I know from him, but I'll give you, I'll tell you because I love the origin story of these and I've told it many, many times. Okay, cool. Um, I was on mm-hmm. Fauna Classifieds going, I, you know, I always look for, oh, I've never seen that before. And when you're first starting out, yep. you see a lot of those, right? <laughs> I've never seen that mm-hmm. before. Oh, it's a mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Yeah, And I've never seen that before. Oh, it's a Baird's yep. rat. Um, <laughs> but over <laughs> yeah. time, you get kind of used to it. And I saw this snake with the look. It looked venomous to me in the picture. It had these big eye, big cat eyes, uh, the, the head mm-hmm. extended. I was like, what is that thing? And so it was a Madagascar cat-eyed snake. And so I wrote the guy, and I, I assumed it was super aggressive, you know. And he said, no, not at all. And it was a very good price. Um, and so I bought it. It wasn't a big, Im- big adult import. It was a small. I'm sure it was an import, but it was small still. And so I got that snake, and I loved it. It's the prettiest golden snake. It's yep. got cool. Its body is cool. Its scales are cool. Um, they're rear fanged, um, uh, but they are just. I, I I tell people I wouldn't compare them to a corn snake in temperament. I'd compare them to a rubber boa. <laughs> they are so oh, cool, mellow. Um, mm. And so that, evidently that's not always true, but that was my experience. So, um, um, evidently some people have some in collections that are aggressive. Um, but anyway, I loved this snake, but it was driving me crazy cause I could only get it to feed about once every six to eight weeks. And so I had a, I, at the time, I guess I knew I had a male, um, But it was driving me crazy, and I finally decided, you know what, I'm I'm afraid I'm going to kill this snake. So I ended up selling it, and then I regretted having sold it. And so I (laughs) started looking at uh, – I ran into a few other places where I saw them, and I got on iHerb. And this was five or six years after (laughs) I sold that. I got on iHerb. There weren't any for sale. But some people had pictures of them in their collection. So I wrote to those people, sent a message to people that had them in their collection and said, if you ever produce babies, I'd be interested. Um, Because my thinking was, one, this animal produces like crazy all over the island of Madagascar, meaning it's easy Mm -hmm. to breed in different conditions. Mm -hmm. So it's it it can yep. live in different conditions. It can breed in different conditions. It should breed easily in captivity. But early on, people were bringing in imports and they were dying, and so people were turned off to this species. So I thought if I could get some captive-born ones, I can or captive-hatched, I can raise those up, and I bet they'll breed great, and we can start a captive-bred line that will impact the the pet trade, the hobby. Um, And so I made a few contacts and stumbled into someone who said, you know what, I'm thinking, I just had a baby. I'm thinking about selling my pair. And his pair was captive born um, from a wild caught, from a wild caught mother. And so I got that pair from him and they were about yearlings, maybe, maybe two year olds, but small two year olds. And I got that pair and it took me a couple of years to get them up to breeding size and they bred like nobody's business, no problem, healthy eggs. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I started, then I started a Facebook group that um, was specifically for them because I wanted to promote this. I, I'm thinking this is like the ideal pet snake. Why do people not have it? <laughs> and I recognize the rear fanged mm-hmm. element makes people nervous. Um, but um, uh, I, I'm certainly not nervous about keeping them from, from that um, vantage point. Uh, I just love them. They're very easily handled. They don't get big. They're sm- smaller than corn yep. snakes. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I would say they're uh, uh, hognose size, you know, as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and sexually dimorphic like hognose. Males much smaller than the females. Um, uh, one of the things I tell people when they're looking at these is you're going to have to co- become accustomed to them not eating. You have to be okay with yes. that. I tell people, I bet I feed my male four times a year. Yeah. Really? That, that was
0: my experience. No one told me that. And I had the exact same anxiety-induced stroke yeah trying to like i was like there's no way you're gonna live you haven't eaten for like three months <laughs> and then wow. sure enough you know and then randomly they would eat uh yeah. so no i know yeah. I i ditto that yeah, exact. So. i actually think i was on your facebook page when I, w- I, I i went there to figure out what was going on and sure enough it, there were quite a few posts that said it's normal yeah. like be
2: still yeah exactly yeah so um <laughs> Yeah, so I just got into it. A Facebook page connected me with Roger, who had been into it for years, and he really focuses on this species uh, over in the UK. Um, and then there's a few folks in the US and a few folks internationally that are that are really into them. And then we've got a, a more and more of a smattering of of uh, people uh, like you, Zach, who are saying, "Hey, this is a great animal," and. And now you can find them all around captive bred. They're, they're pretty readily available. Um, I just, I've got two clutches of eggs in my incubator right now. They were the first ones to go for me this year. Um, and um, now my females, every time I open the tub, want to take my fingers off. They are immediately looking for food, but they wouldn't eat for like mm-hmm. five months. <laughs> now they'll eat anything, wow. and the yeah. male still isn't that interested in eating. But I did get him to eat a live uh, mouse the other day. So, yeah. whenever
0: snakes have that feeding pattern, it it, it usually relays back to where they yeah. come from, and they're basically in a system where there's boom and bust. So part of the year food is everywhere and you just gorge and gorge and gorge and then the other half of the year if you slither out of your burrow, tree hollow, whatever it may be, you're going to cook to death and die. <laughs> so, you got to get all your calories in that 6-month window. Yeah. Um and once I realized that's what was going on and it wasn't reflective of my care, yeah, it's still it's still anxiety inducing, but at the same time it was like, okay, well maybe this is all right cuz you know, we're reflecting the boom right. and the loss.
2: Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I just cool. think they're great, and I, I felt like they were underrepresented in the hobby. So many people who would would like an interesting small colubrid, they should be lining up for these.
0: Yeah. Well, what I what what drew my attention to them almost immediately, is I remember when I first saw a, a picture of one. This was back in twenty sixteen I think. It was right when I was starting the zoo-size stuff. Um, I I thought to myself, what species of Boiga is yeah. that? And then I, I looked and was like, Wait, that's not a Boiga Like, wait, huh? Yeah. Um, because that that head and they're filling a similar niche to Boiga in Madagascar. Uh but they're definitely my I, I've kept Boiga, I've kept these guys. These guys are way like granted, they go on the hunger strikes, but they also were a lot Easier to get, like you were saying, up and established and going than the the boiga that oh, yeah. I had in the past. Those were kind of a pain in the ass to get, you know, settled to the point that you know they were they were heading towards a stable existence. Um, these guys, when I when I got my first pair, and I ended up with two point two of them, um, and have, I, I produced multiple clutches. Uh, they. I must have gotten them during the the boom. Be- thank God I did because they ate right away. I don't know what would have happened if I got them and they didn't eat for five months.
2: Um, but
1: yeah, anyway. so so do these guys uh, readily take rodents? I mean, even as juveniles um, or that's
2: What's a great the- question. Um, that was one of the big challenges with these guys. One one of the advantages is they're a small snake that will take a baby pinky when they when they're born when they hatch. Um, And so to me, that's the critical thing. You can't keep a snake or it's hard to keep a snake that's so small that when it has a baby, it's really hard to feed the baby. Um, I think we all kind of Mm -hmm. experienced or are familiar with species that are like that. So these guys will eat Mm -hmm. a small, you know, newborn day old pinky from the get go. Um, And what I've experienced is... If you gently open their mouth and put a frozen thawed pinky into their mouth, they will then grab it with their rear fangs and you can gently set them down and they will just work their way fang to fang all the way down the, the, uh, the pinky and eat. So hand, I wouldn't, it's not force feeding and it's not really teeth mm-hmm. feeding It's gently opening up their mouth, putting it in there, and then they grab it. And I would say 90 to 95% of my babies will eat like that um, when they're born. Um, And one of the tricks to that is after they've eaten a few times generally, what I will do is I will feed them at night. I'll put a pinky in their little tub. And then in the morning I'll come back, and if the pinky's still there, then I'll feed them that way. And eventually, Mm -hmm. they will start picking it up in in the night. And so then you don't have to feed them that way anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, nice. It's a, it's a great system. They're easy animals. Um. Yeah. So yeah, I'm a big fan.
1: Yeah, I asked that question because it's whenever we talk about a, a snake that it's pretty and seems easy, I always wonder, you know, why hasn't this exploded? Right. Why isn't this snake more popular? And of course the rear fang aspect is probably what slows it down. But normally my mind goes to probably a lizard yeah. eater, you know, or probably one sprawl. Yeah. You know what I mean? Is is that what has kept this species from, from really going mainstream type of things? So So, yeah,
2: just yeah, and I don't know how many people have struggled because they don't readily, they don't, a small percentage of them will take a pinky just thrown in there and you leave them to their own devices. Um, And it doesn't seem to help much by giving them a live pinky. And I've tried a few different scenting techniques, and those were not great, but usually they would eventually (laughs) eat given enough time. But this method of just placing them in their mouth, they eat and they start growing. And um, it's, yeah. it's a nice uh, solution. I, I've got several other species that I wish were so easy to get going. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah. When I, I didn't know that trick. And what I was doing with, with my clutches is I was just basically keeping them all together in a single shoebox. Uh, six-quart tub, uh-huh. yep. I think, is mm-hmm. the standard. I don't yep. know if yeah, I that's got right. the measurement Six-quart. Yep. Yeah. And then I would have um mulch, a little water bowl, some sticks, because they are very active at oh, night. Yeah. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, And then I just basically had a little glass bowl that I would put a bunch of pinkies in, and then, like you said, I just like watching them. So I'd put that in there, and I would like go out to watch TV at night with all the lights off and just have the tub next to me to make sure. They're not accidentally grabbing the head and the butt and lady and the trapping it and eating each other. Um, But there will always be like a third that would just eat right off the bat like that. And then after four or five of those, it was kind of fun to watch them because those troublesome eaters, usually by the second or third feeding, and then the other ones are starting to get a little bit bigger because they've eaten every time. You'd see them kind of go over and be like, "All right, what the hell is this whole thing about?" So they learned it was learned behavior. Yeah, and 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 then uh, I had one that didn't eat uh, ultimately, but other than that, I last year I had a I made over thirty of these things, and I got all of them to, to to take by you know after doing that trick. So they are, for what they are, they are remarkably easy to get started as a little colubrid. That's that. We would probably put the the title of oddball on them, but for an oddball, they're a pretty easy oddball.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
0: I would say that, yeah. So as far as like keeping is concerned, um, what would be the setup
2: that you had them in? Um, I keep them like I keep my North American colubrids, Um, the you know a corn snake, if you will. Uh, So they've got a hot spot of. 82 uh, maybe 84 right in that range um, I keep them on a kiln dried pine bedding and I always give them a humid hide and okay. they spend a lot of time in the hide and then always fresh water obviously um, and uh, and that's pretty much all they need they'll hang out of that hide they'll come out at night they'll roam around see what's happening and uh, feed and breed. And by the way, I keep my three... I've got a trio of uh, gold adults right now, and I keep them together 24-7. Well, not, well I feed them separately, but I keep them together <laughs> all year round.
0: Yeah, I, I started doing that as well, actually, which is kind of yeah. cool. Um, I had mine in a 4x2x2, a by two by two, and I just bought some... Uh, Pothos plants and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, snake plants. Oh, yeah. For my own amusement, threw them in in that cage and gave them a bunch of, like, areas to climb. Basically set it up the way you would for, like, an Amazon tree boa. And that, when I had them in there, that became my absolute favorite vivarium in my office at school. Uh, Because, or sorry, my office at work. no. Jesus, school and work are the same. My office at home.
2: (laughs) That's funny. I was like, where
0: do you work? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It it might tell you how much time I used to spend here. Um, Anyway, but they were great. Absolutely. Like, they were so active. They were up and down and moving around and um, inquisitive. They would, If you kind of rattled your fingers on the glass, they would kind of come over and and check it out. So those of you that like naturalistic vivaria – they're really, really, really cool, and that's set up as well. And and since Glenn mentioned they don't get that big, if you give them a rather large viv, you're know, you you're not going to see them much during the day. But that hour after the lights go out, they got zoomies. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: So, no,
1: very, very cool. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the, the breeding behavior like? Yeah. I mean, are you? You said you keep them like corn snakes. Are you cycling them like um, corn I mean, what do you guys do? I
2: I'd be interested in hearing what you do, Zach. I have um, cycled sure. them um, every year up until this year, um, and this year I thought, you know what? They're from Madagascar. My Sanzinia, Madagascar tree boas, are from Madagascar. Maybe they have similar winters, so I kept them in with my boas and pythons. <laughs> Um, and so I I call it gently cycle Gently cycled those colubrids yep. And um, And I had a bad clutch And a great clutch As far as um, Fertility And so when I had my bad clutch I was like Oh I shouldn't have done that And then when I got my great clutch I was like <laughs> Oh I'm a genius <laughs> Yeah that's how that works <laughs>
0: Uh, What I would do, I had them all together in that big viv, and um, I turned off the halogens and just let the LEDs light it up, and then I lowered the light cycle, and I thought I was being all swanky, and uh, they did not breed under those conditions, and so then what I did is they were in the Vivaria uh, for, like, the, the spring, summer, and fall, and then around Thanksgiving, the classic Thanksgiving, the Valentine's Day thing, I moved them all from you – know, they were in the Bavaria. I moved them into a rack that is in my office at home. Got it that time. Uh, that Nailed is right <laughs> <laughs> That is next to a window, and I keep that window cracked. So they definitely had a drop, um, and I did that three years – like that exact right. – Scenario: You're in the ra- You're in the viv all year until it's wintertime, Then you're going in the rack, and uh, they bred after that every every season. And they they probably would have bred in the vivaria, but I knew they were going to breed in the rack. But I wasn't dropping them down. I mean that my I mean it gets cold in West Virginia, so no matter what, our houses experience a dip in temperature. Um, so I think that I was dropping them probably down to around the upper fifties, low sixties. Okay, yeah. And then upper sixty seventy during the day, that'll do it. Um, But it, I never saw a lock. I never saw breeding behavior. I just would pull the females out usually around the end of January, February, and would notice they were kind of plump. And then by the end of Feb, by the beginning of March, they were like, they were obvious. Yeah, you can see that hanging down there. Yes.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I um, just this last week uh, hooked up a new system thanks to technology where my lights in my room are on daylight hours. Um, so it automatically Mm -hmm. adjusts based on sun, sunrise and sunset. And I was toying with setting it for some time other than my time, you know, like Madagascar time. Uh But then I thought, you know, (laughs) but the temperatures and things are all going to be relative to my time. So I decided to to set it with, with my time, but I have a small window in the room. Um, so it it did give a little bit of a light cycle, but it was pretty dark in there during the day. And I thought maybe some of my animals will do a little better with having real daytime and nighttime, and having those the length of those days change seasonally. And so, um, yeah, you know, those are those are the things we kind of try and learn as time goes over. And I I've, I've never done it before, and I've just started about four days ago, so. I keep yeah. trying to turn my light off when I leave my room.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yep, I have those exact. I have similar uh, smart plugs, yeah. and I, I. What made me do that is I. I, I don't know why I, I. absolutely went off the nerd deep end last year uh, when we recorded that Brumation bonanza episode mm-hmm. of Infamy. Now, <laughs> um, that was kind of self-serving. Like that gave me a reason to read all that stuff uh and when i did that like kind of deep dive i i realized in reading all the literature that this you know herpetologists have done is that we do put a huge emphasis on temperature but i feel like after reading that um there's a there's a whole group of hormones that are only controlled really by light hitting their retinas so these light cycles i think matter way more than we realize and it, I think that's also why people can do the the light cycling and the food mm-hmm. cycling and right. skip the temperature and then they get yep. eggs. Uh, and I think that if people go to the the plugs so that you're matching, you're dialing that in, I, 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 yeah, that's an area that we're going to be doing stuff here at school with. Just And like I said, it's just my curiosity because I... I think it's really cool that you can breed things without necessarily dropping their temperatures like way down Yeah. The, the other
2: element is for those people who use rack systems, a lot of ball python in particular people use tubs that don't let light in. Even if you do have yeah. light, they don't. Mm-hmm. it doesn't let it in. Mm-hmm. And I actually bought my Freedom Breeder with all those kind of gray tubs. And I ended up over time replacing every one of the tubs just because mm-hmm. every time I opened it, my animal was like, what's going on? And but, <laughs> yep. but with the clear ones, when you, they, were, they were noticed when I came in. They noticed what's what going on. You open it and they're not surprised mm-hmm. that something's there. And it just seemed yep. like it was a better experience for them, I guess I would say, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> instead of being kept in the dark all the time. And I think maybe some people... I actually have a few of them, a few of those dark tubs, um, in case I have an animal that seems too skittish to eat, then you Mm -hmm. put it in there and it has very few distractions and maybe Mm -hmm. then you can get it eating. So just, you know, we got all these different tools we can try and do different things with and based on the animal's behavior and, and how they do for us, we, we can try different things.
1: You know, I think when it comes to the lighting, it's, it's got to affect it in some way. You know, it's, it's just more naturalistic. And I guess it's on one extreme, it would be, yes, it's going to trigger phenomenal breeding behaviors or, you know, things internally or worst case scenario, it doesn't hurt. (laughs) You know what I mean? No, it doesn't. It's, that's what it comes down to is it could, it could only help. It it Mm -hmm. couldn't hurt, you know, so... There's really not a reason to not try it, not go. For yeah, it. absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think that we
0: need to do a lot more thinking that way, Clint. Mm-hmm. Of when we get when people get into their silos and they're like duking it out, uh, which in itself is not overly necessary. But uh, yeah. if you're, you know, if you're doing something that's going to increase the experience of the snake while it is alive on this planet, we might as well do it. Like, there's just no. Reason not to. Well,
1: it, so. and it, it goes to, you know, <laughs> like the, the studying of it, you know, on, on your end, where even if we as hobbyists can't see a change in behavior, that doesn't mean that the light cycle is not doing something physically, yeah. you know, in turn, just mm-hmm. like you said, when you just said that, you know, there's hormones that are triggered from light hitting the retina. I'm an idiot that's never heard of that before <laughs> in my life. <laughs> I mean, so... I just learned something, but th- that's what I'm getting at is, you know, we may or may not see a change in the behaviors of someone who's the keeper, but it doesn't mean that there's not, you know, physical traits taking place and, and, and really that, uh, that are beneficial and it, oh, yeah. who knows that light cycle may add two years to the lifespan of that snake that we would have never even considered the correlation or, you know, because of whatever it's doing internally we've never thought of or paid attention to. Okay. Yikes. Well, while we're waiting, hopefully, that Glenn will pop back on, I want to reiterate what he was just saying there. Uh, I mean, some very fantastic advice, and that's mm-hmm. saving $50, saving $100 on an animal up front versus all the time, all the care, all the money that's going to go into them over the course of the years of life, hopefully the years of life, that that animal's going to have. I mean, that's. We just need to think through that into a, a much better and higher degree. Uh, so that was, I mean, great advice there, Glenn. Um, I also like that when thinking of a, a species that you want to work with, the, the way that you're going to set up with somebody a year in advance, six months in advance, that kind of thing. So, yes, yeah, so one of the things I always kind of point out to people is I say, you know, if you're spending a thousand dollars on snakes. How much are you spending on caging you know it's little things like that where it's invest right. in what you're doing don't just you know putting all your money in animals without thinking through thinking long term so spectacular advice there glenn
2: yeah and, and snakes are expensive to <laughs> yes. feed yes um you know it's that's a lot and getting more expensive every day it seems mm-hmm. um it's uh, that's a lot of money you spend um and so I do find it fascinating when people are nickel and diming somebody for $20 and I'm like, I, if you can't afford the snake, you can't afford to own this
1: snake. Yes. You can't afford yes. to feed it. I a hundred percent agree. I, whenever I'll get asked if I'll do a payment plan on, you know, $125 animal, I, I don't think it's, mm-hmm. it's right for you. It, you know, I think mm-hmm. that, yeah, let's push, put this off a year and let, let's see where mm-hmm. you're at. You know, it's, not, not to shame anyone, just kind of to your point where we need to be able to fund taking care of them, not just fund oh, acquiring them. So, no, I agree. 100%. Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, I, I've got one more, just general question, uh, and I think that this is a good one for for somebody that's you know had the diversity that you had, and this is for you too, Clint. Uh, so one of the things that we, I made the jump into the. Getula kings. I call them Getula kings, but basically everything that used to be a subspecies off of Getula So mm. that includes, except California kings. I have a couple of those, but not many. So that's like desert kings, speckled kings, eastern kings, and then a whole bunch of Florida kings. Mm. And it's been kind of fun having this like large, specialized collection at the house. But one of the things I've noticed is I got a whole bunch of... Um, older babies is the way I would classify them. They weren't fresh out of the egg, but they definitely were not sub-adults. And they're all being fed the same way. They're all in the racks, the grow-out racks, um, ultimately to go to either bigger racks or into my vibs that I have. And I've noticed that like I have some of those little boogers. They're eating the same, they don't have a problem eating, and they just won't freaking grow. And it my biologist brain can't accept this like I lay awake at night trying to logic my way out of like what the hell is going on and I've deduced I don't know what's going on (laughs) there's no it has to it could be genetics it could be whatever but I have like siblings where the the sister the female is huge and the brother is small and with those kings normally the males are bigger than the females just a little bit not by much but they're definitely bigger is this is this something you all have ex, experienced you haven't experienced I'm just curious to see given the multitude of critters that you've kept
2: yeah I, you know as I think about that I can't think of I don't have snakes that could eat every time you know every time I feed some yeah. eat and yeah. some don't eat and I have enough that it's really hard for me to I I will keep track of the first five or six mm-hmm. times they eat. And after that, I think established, I'm not going to write down every time a, a baby eats. Um, and so um, if I saw that, I would think, well, is this one just refusing more than the other one? And um, one of the things that I do notice when I do have a little discrepancy is I, it's like, I'm going to give the smaller of the two mm-hmm. fuzzy mice, to the smaller yeah. snake because that's size appropriate. So I'm, I'm actually encouraging one to grow more, yeah. the bigger one to grow more than the other one. I mean, that may be part of what's going on. Maybe de- be, you know, temperature. I, I'm always fascinated by how some tubs yes. right next to each other can be different temperatures for some mm-hmm. rare reason. <laughs> um, and so if it bothered me, I'd try to figure those things out. Um, but otherwise, I just say, well, that's <laughs> yeah. the way life is, buddy.
1: I, I have, literally, it's funny you asked this question today, Zach, because <laughs> just today, um, I'm going through, I have an associate here that he takes care of you know, most of the snakes. I've kind of taken the Asians back on because we weren't, mm-hmm. things weren't going quite the way yep. we needed them to in there. Um, again, it's not something he's familiar with. I know the behaviors, right? Just like yep. we were talking about. The nuance. Right. Exactly. Um, but as I'm going through our holdback room, um, I'm, you know, kind of pulling some um, tubs and one of them I opened up and there's a, I want to say it's like a salmon, salmon, coral, ghost, corn snake. And I look at it and I look at look at him, I go, what the hell is going on with this snake? And he's <laughs> like, what do you mean? And I go, it's a 21, you know, so this is, uh, you know, not quite two years old, but. And this thing is, it's not even quite as big as those babies you just sent me. Really? And I'm like, I'm like, what the oh, hell is wow. going on with this thing? And he, he looks at the car and he says, it's eating every time. I, I, I don't know. I don't <laughs> yeah. know what the deal is. It's not like it's refusing. It's not having regurg problems, anything like that. Now, I mean, last year I did cool down all the holdbacks, which I don't usually do. I, I just needed the break. Yeah. Right? We needed to be able to regroup. Uh, so, you know, it lost that growth, but just the fact of, I think no. it's why they lay 10, 12, 20 <laughs> eggs, because you're going to have some that just fail to thrive. And even the ones that do survive, they just may not be, you know, the, the norm. And so I think there's, I'm sure there's a million other things that go oh, into God, that yeah. as well, you know, yeah. to the temperatures the you know, whatever, but, um, I, I just think that every now and then there's those animals, you know, it's even siblings in, I mean, in us, you know what I mean? Yeah. When you look, you've got, some are going to be six, seven inches taller than the other one, you know, and they've uh, eaten the same food and grew up in the same house to the same parents. So I think just sometimes there's those flukes. Yeah, you know, I just have this, how it comes. this one yeah.
0: grow out rack. It's in, in the office at the house. And it was really weird because it also defied logic because the top is warmer and the bottom is colder. And the snakes at the bottom were growing much faster than the animals at the top. This grabbed my brain so much in the past 12 months that last summer I took my Govies that I used to track temperature. and Every tub in that rack had a Govie in it. Like the Govies went from across the garage everywhere into this one little reptile basics rack where the grow outs (laughs) were. And I moved the snakes around like musical chairs. There was no temperature differential, like you, like your associate said. That, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a king snake; it's going to pound food no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. they just, they just won't grow uh, at like at the same rate because the animals that were growing uh, fast at the bottom of the rack, I moved them to the top, and the animals at the top that were growing slow, I moved into the bottom. And it, it's more—I'm like, not upset. They're still going to be breeding size when they're supposed to be. Uh, but it's more of just a, like, what the hell? Like, you know, I got to figure this yeah. out. Like, it was one of those kind of things more than anything. But I was just curious if you've had yeah, that. Yeah, that's, fascinating. that's well, Or not.
1: And then um, I would sit here and it's just where kind of, like, you know, the mm-hmm. different ideas start rolling where if it's temperature related, you know, instantly you think, okay, well, warmer ones are going to be eating better, things like that. Yeah. But when they're all eating, then you start to think, okay, well, the warmer ones are probably digesting faster. Yeah faster metabolism too quickly yeah and then not, and yeah are not yeah, and everything it. on the same routine they're actually you know they're a lot hungrier by the time mm-hmm. because they're you know burning through some, it's it's no. all this you know what i mean it's i'm gonna that's leave it the 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 smart guys like you zach to uh study <laughs> well the that smart guy doesn't know what the hell's going <laughs> yeah. on <laughs> yeah that's the
2: advantage that's the advantage of not getting yeah. the studies out, is yeah, I can answer the question either direction yep. with a very good, solid answer. Yes, and that's right. right? I have to have like mul- <laughs> multiplication right. or sorry, yeah.
0: replication and you
1: know. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's
0: anyway. too much ass. All right, well,
2: well <laughs> I will be paying attention to that though, Zach. Now that you mentioned that, I'm gonna I'm gonna okay. pay attention and see if I notice any All right, of those cool. things. Uh, that's fascinating. Well,
0: we're nearing the end here, and so our. Matt made this up, so this is in honor of Mr. Most. Um, but we started asking people near the end, last question, is kind of where do you see herpeticulture kind of in a year, two years, five years, ten years? And and we can give a spin because I can tell you that Clint and I are here on the east, and you are obviously yeah. you know on the west, and I, I feel like it's just a little bit different being a herpeticulturalist on the other side of the continent than it is over here. Um, so, what what are your perspectives on on all this?
2: Um, yeah, I think I think there is a real threat to our hobby, um, and I equate it to smoking. <laughs> um, you know, i I personally don't smoke, but I think people should have the freedom. I don't think we have to, we should protect people from themselves. Yeah. That's Um, I'm, I'm not a big politics guy, but that's just Mm -hmm. kind of my deal. And I think it's ridiculous that we make people wear seatbelts. Um, now that being said, I think everyone should wear a seatbelt all the time. I think it's crazy. I think it would be crazy to not, but to make it a loss seems super Mm -hmm. weird to me. Um, so anyway, that's just kind of my, but here's the thing about smoking. Every time, especially out here in California, every time a law or a tax comes in that says we're going to hurt the smokers, it always passes because most people are not smokers. <laughs> and so they, they're they not thinking, what about the freedom of those who choose to smoke? Instead, they're thinking, well, how's it going to affect me? What do I like or not like? And I don't like smoke in my restaurant or I don't like smoke out at the park so let's make laws against that just because the majority feel that way and um, the majority of people do not yes, like snakes right? Um, I, I am reminded of that weekly um, and so uh, I do think as soon as th- the states start going you know what I'm worried about invasive animals I'm worried about rear fanged venoms mm-hmm. They don't, I don't know anything about it. If their perspective is, I don't know anything about it, but it sounds bad. Let's make a law and everyone's going to go. That sounds like a great law because I don't mm-hmm. like snakes and I'm afraid of them. Um, so it does concern me kind of culturally how we're moving uh, as a nation and, and to some degree uh, in my home state of California. Um, because I think there's a good chance we'll lose some liberties in that regard. Um just because most people uh, they're they're not protective of our liberties, and they're afraid of something yeah. that we like, or they don't like right. something that we like, and so I think we're maybe in a, a difficult spot. Um, we'll see. Um, uh, I'm I'm always pleased with how many species and things I can keep in my area. I'm not a venomous guy. I, I, I've got. Too many grandchildren to yeah. have any venomous snakes around me, um, and so uh, you know that's that's a whole different kind of issue. And I'm not a big snake guy because um, I don't have the space for it, and I'm, I'm, I don't really find them nearly as engaging as some of the smaller ones, anyway. But um, that, that's just personal preference. And so in California, there aren't a lot of things that I go, oh, I can't do that because I'm in California. Most everything I want to do, I I can do. But things like even the Madagascar cat-eyed snakes, I know people who say, "Oh no, they they're rear fanged, and I can't do that." I think New York City has um, some kind of requirements there. Yeah, yeah. Really, where you are?
1: Sounds like it's getting a little gray here because um, in in Indiana, the law as it was written previously, and and as I read it, um, it was you know no venomous, no rear fanged venomous. However, things like hog nose were perfectly fine, right. but it didn't yeah. specifically state that. It was more, I think, just potentially DNR, just looking the other way on it. Um, but I think now it's being it's written where um, anything that can is fatal or has the ability to cause severe bodily harm, which. Now that's really giving us a gray area on, you know what I mean? Who considers this, that, you know, what rear fang. Right. But I'll take that gray area over no rear fangs. Correct, correct. Yeah.
2: You know? Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I think uh, that's a potential problem. I also think there's a problem that potentially happens to the hobby by the hobby itself, and that is it just seems like more and more people are breeding. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I mean, I don't ha- I don't know a lot of people who want to buy my snakes personally. I have to sell them through mm-hmm. morph market, you know, and it just seems like, when is this market going to saturate? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've, I've just been shocked at how much, how many animals, and by the way, that's also part of the reason why I don't have... 40, you know, Leonis king snakes, because I'm like, what am I going to do if I produce that, that many babies, what am I going to do with all those? Um, so anyway, I think there's a potential of us kind of saturating the market interest wise. Um, and it's one of the things that also sort of, uh, supports my, my attraction to the lesser kept species. Because people oh, yeah. are
1: always interested in A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I agree with that. If you keep your – you keep the thing that not everybody else has and you'll never have a problem with having too many of them. <laughs> you know, it's uh, – that happens. Yeah. You know, an interesting thing I learned when doing the – kind of the research uh, prior to opening up the shop here, um, creating the business plan and whatnot, I believe it was in 2020 – the number of reptiles in uh, U.S. households surpassed the number yep. of dogs and cats in U.S. households. Wow. Um, now, given there's several of us that have 300 <laughs> of them in a basement, so we could be skewing the yeah. numbers a little bit. <laughs> sure. Uh, but I also sure. I, I believe that, uh, like in previous episodes, Zach, when, when we talked about the the Steve Irwin and mm-hmm. um, uh, Jeff Corwin that type yep. that really sets you know a, a movement um, in interest, and I think that um, the explosion of YouTube and the YouTube yeah. channels and and all that it's we are still the minority in terms of enjoying l- reptiles, but I think that there's still a lot of market space. Yeah. meaning a lot of minds that okay. can still change and the younger generations are already, you know, they, they're much more into it than, um, than before. So I think that it's, it's easy to saturate in some of the very commonly kept and mass produced. And, you know, how many people want a normal ball Python at this point? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But, uh, I think you're, you're certainly right on the, uh, having the things that not everybody else has, which you, you've got a list of. Yes, you Clint. do. <laughs> uh, yeah, it keeps You're you You're the engine for that good. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely.
2: <laughs> well, I, I, I have had many conversations with people who said, I'm going to buy a snake as soon as I move out oh, of my mother's yes. house. <laughs>
1: oh, yes, yes. See, now whenever I've got them where they bring their mother to me to yeah, convince them because they can walk in. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Very cool. So, any final thoughts before we wrap this up?
2: Well, I, I really appreciate you guys uh, having me on. Oh, you know what? I, I think we would be remiss and not mention that there are different color oh, hell phases. Yeah. Of oh, wow. I don't know. I can't believe we didn't do that. Yes. Um, so, gold is by is far the best. the best. I agree <laughs> with you on that. Without question. I, I, I would say there are two color phases gold and then yeah. the other, ones. But I like that. other people mm-hmm. <laughs> other people are very committed to what they call mm-hmm. silver which is sort of aneryish looking yeah. um uh, but uh, gray maybe is a, a better descriptor of what it is but it's gray brown yeah. and then there's another color that i guess technically the the Marketing color is bronze, which we would know yes. as brown mm-hmm. and dirt, yeah, dirt colored, um, dirt brown. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. dirt brown. Uh, but I will say all of them are, are cool. It's cool to have, I've had all of them at different times, uh, together and that's kind of fun too. Cause they, they're, you know, when you have something, it's nice. It's fun to have something yep. a little different. Uh, but there are a few of those different options and, um, and it's funny because I'll have people hit me up every year and say, hey, do you have any silvers? Do you have any browns? And I'm like, no, I'm only doing golds now. And they go, oh, well, I, I want to get a silver or a brown one because I hear they're more rare. <laughs> and I said, they're more rare because they're ugly and nobody <laughs> wants them. Yeah. Yeah. I- <laughs> so I will say that first one I had was a beautiful gold, and that's the one I fell in love with, and I still yep. love the gold. I, I-, I
0: had – I had a gold male and a a a a dirt brown. i, I I'll go with that. We'll, we'll call it that massive female um, that was a full third bigger than the male. Uh, and they were fun to breed because they would throw like one year there would be more golds than browns, and then the next year there would be more browns than gold. I never was able to figure it out. and one of the cool things about mad cats on that line of thought is that these color phases all occur naturally in madagascar it's not necessarily a product of selective breeding if you go on to iNaturalist, you can see them all Mm -hmm. and they actually led Mm -hmm. to some problems when they were trying to figure out what what constituted a species because they were pulling like is this a different species and then they figured out oh no no, it's not it's just you know so it's just color phases yeah you can't
2: go by Mm -hmm. color you got to go by scale count and even that, especially with uh, species that have been bred in the U.S., um, a lot of them have been oh, yeah. crossbred. All, um, so uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. Did you Zach? Did you have any that were kind of in between? Exactly yeah, what I was going to ask. I, I that that was my that. question. Yeah, I experienced that. I had I produced I, I bred a brown to a, a gold, and some were. Dark brown, others were bright gold, and others were kind of dirty I would say
0: that I got the dirty gold brown. (laughs) I like that, by the way. Um, Because they were – I saw the pictures of the silvers. I know exactly what you're talking about on that front. And uh, these things popped out. Well, I actually – to back that up one more step, when I really got into them, I thought, ooh – you know, I like these. I'm going to buy another pair, and so I waited and I tried to get the silvers, and I bought the silvers, and I got the silvers, and I thought, "What? <clears throat> like this is not <laughs> as advertised. <laughs> this is just like a more lightly colored dirt brown than my dirt brown."
2: That's that's how so, I describe um, them. Yeah,
0: and I and I raised those those two up, and last year I bred the gold male I had um, to one of those so called silvers. And I got all kinds of crazy stuff. And I was just, I just ended up Mm -hmm. calling them mad cats. Like I did, they weren't, because, you know, I didn't want to call them gold. Yeah. But I don't know what the hell they were. Because I had that, that, exactly what you're talking about. That kind of um, continuum is what I would explain. I definitely had some that were like, and it was kind of interesting because it was a gold to the silver female. And I got the classic dirt brown color. And I actually liked that color because it, it, in the naturalistic vivarium, they're cool because they blend in so perfectly that you don't like on cork bark tubes and things that you don't even realize you're looking at the snake. Like they look like a liana or something, which was kind of cool. Um, but no, I, I know,
2: yeah. So kind of poly. And the different. thing, the thing I like. I'm sorry. The thing I like about the brown ones is they tend to be a higher contrast yes. in the in mm-hmm. the two colors, so that you know, their patterns are more yep. distinct. So I do Mm -hmm. like that about those. But, yeah, uh, there's been arguments that the silver is a xanthic, but I would assume that if it truly was a xanthic, it would be simple Mm -hmm. recessive, and as you just said, and as I've experienced, that's not, they don't, it's not simple recessive. It's not how it shows itself. Yeah.
0: All right. Cool. Well, I'm glad you brought that in at the end. That's what I got. We should have had that about 20 (laughs) minutes ago, but that's okay. We we got it in there. So... (laughs) All right. well this was absolutely fantastic and given the nature of that collection we will absolutely have you back on again if you want to come back we would love to have you so this is the first of of many hopefully with with Glenn but if people want to see your beautiful photography that we've talked about oh so much, uh, (laughs) where would people go to find you and maybe talk to you about some of the snakes you keep and and look into babies or, or anything of that nature
2: yeah, I, I, all my babies that I have for sale, are, I put on Morph Market. So just Glen Reptiles at Morph Market. But if you want to see pictures, I've got a lot of great pictures on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glen Reptiles on Facebook. And if you go to photo albums, the pictures are divided by animal. And so it's a pretty good way to find what animals look like and that sort of thing. And then I also have an Instagram and and if you do TikTok, follow me on TikTok because I only got sixty-nine followers. I did it because my high young high school kid uh-huh. friends are doing the TikTok <laughs> thing, and I was like, "Okay, I'm going to do a TikTok." And I'm like, "I'll have mo- I'll have more followers than you in a month." I told this guy, and I cannot get into TikTok <laughs> <anymore. That's> terrible. <laughs> so cool. Boost that number. Let's let's try to get there up over. All right, cool. Everybody, go to Glenn's
0: TikTok <laughs> right now. I would go, but I'm not on TikTok because I have to draw a line somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. that's yeah, I'm afraid I drew my line a little late. <laughs>
0: cool, 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 cool. All righty. Well, um, those of you interested in finding me, it's Dr. Crawdad on Instagram, uh, Zach Lopeman on Facebook. And as always, if you're interested in grad school and you want to work with snakes, so we're crocs. Um, or turtles or salamanders, frogs any of the above uh, please reach out to me Um, we're starting to make some really 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 cool connections in the zoo world I can't talk about them until they're official but I can't wait to talk about them because they're so close to being official it's ridiculous (laughs) Uh, I'm going to actually be working on some of my dream projects I had to pinch myself after I had the conversation I had earlier or sorry, late last week but I'll keep everybody in suspense so that's where you can find me uh,
1: and Clint where can
0: people find you
1: uh, You can find us on Facebook at metazotics uh, Instagram metazotics LLC uh, you can reach out to me personally Clint Bartley also on Facebook and uh, on Instagram you can always email us metazotics at gmail.com last but I'm sorry metazotics at yeah gmail.com and last but not least forgot to mention this earlier. Metazotics.com. We now have all of our supplies and dry goods posted on the website, able to ship them out all over the country. So,
0: Ooh, hit them up. Check it out. Okay, and then, in <laughs> honor of Matt, who can't be here today, Serpometra, see what our our brother from another mother's doing. So, there you go. All right. Well, this was fantastic. Thank you, Glenn, and uh, yeah, my pleasure. Our pleasure as well. So, absolutely. Whatever, Whatever time you're listening to this, morning, afternoon, evening, or night, hope you're having a good one. Later.